0: I'm Al Phil Reese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Pensound Archive, writing.upen Dot edu slash pensound. Today, I'm happily, very happily joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler Studio by Angela Carr, author of three books of poetry, Rope Walk, The Rose Concordance, and Here and There, whose new poetry manuscript, Without Ceremony, is an investigation of the nature of epistemological violence and gun violence. Who has been living and working in New York City for some time, but is originally from Montreal where she worked as a translator and earned her Ph.D. in comparative literature and whose most recent book-length poetry translation is Nicole Broussard's Ardor, Coach House, 2015. And by Anna Strong-Safford, a poet memoirist whose work has appeared in Supplement, Cleaver, Peregrine, and elsewhere, a participant in several fun, great, smart episodes of Poem Talk, one on Paul Celan, another on Sean Bonney. I think those are the two, right? who is currently co-teaching with me and others a Graduate Seminar on Contemporary Poetry and Pedagogy and is a founding teaching assistant for the free and open non-credit online course called ModPo and now is its lead coordinator, I'm really happy to say, and whose position is as an instructor and curriculum specialist collaboratively for Penn's College of Liberal and Professional Studies and the Kelly Writers House. And by Mithili Jaganathan, a writer, poet, educator based in Philadelphia since her time at Pannier in the early days of the Kelly Writer's House, whose poems investigate public and private space, power, gender, property, desire, collectivity, and the conditions of speech, who is the author of Acts, a chapbook from Habenicht Press, and whose poems have appeared in a variety of magazines in Indivisible, an anthology of contemporary South Asian American Poetry and in Up Against, a short film by Sarah Zia Ibrahimi for the Termite TV, whose uh, literary writerly home in Philadelphia has been for many years the Asian Arts Initiative uh, and whose interview conversation with Gail Issa, founder of Asian Arts Initiative, is forthcoming in a special issue of Asian American Literary Review, looking back on the Asian Arts Initiative's first 25 years my fleet it's so good to have you back at the writer's house
1: thanks al it's great to be back here and in this new studio yeah which I well seen
0: not so new but it's been but a while since seen you have <laughs> yeah and i think you were literally in that founding generation of writer's house people
1: yeah so before kelly was part of the name
0: before kelly was just called the writer's house <laughs> yeah do you have a sentence on asian arts initiative Wait, i mean you've been associated with them for a long long time
1: yeah, um, it, it's interesting. I mean, I, um, the poem that I read for the 25th anniversary, I, it just so happened that I got involved with the Asian Arts Initiative um, the year I took some time off from Penn, actually. Um, but, uh, and it was also the same year that I met the love of my life, um, 1997. So I, I banner year. So I wrote a poem kind of weaving that. Oh, that's History. Nice. <laughs> That's great. And
0: that poem will be published so.
1: um I, hope I have to figure out where, but yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Angela, thank you for coming from New York.
1: Yeah, thank you, all.
0: Spending the day. This conversation won't explicitly note that you're spending the day with us, but I'll just say that you are, and it's, it's a great pleasure.
2: Yeah, it's great to be here.
0: Thank you. And Anna, as always. Hey. Great to see you. Yeah. Well, the four of us are here today to talk about a book by Divya Victor published in 2017. It's called Kith, K-I-T-H. Um, and at the end of this work is a long alphabetical poem, a long poem called Foreign Terms. Um, poems in this work typically have titles A is for, B is for, so it has that alphabetical-ishness about it. There are no poems for XYZ, so the final poem in the sequence is W is for Walt Whitman's soul. At the fall 2017 book thug or book hug launch, Divya chose to read this poem. And that is where our audio today comes from, available as a video on YouTube and also now as audio only on Divya Victor's pen Sound author page. So here now is Divya Victor reading W is for Walt Whitman's soul.
3: One of the very first Indian words to enter the English language was the Hindustani slang for plunder, which is loot. Thank you. W is for Walt Whitman's soul. It sits with a fork made from a lotus on an ivory chair eating an elephant steak in the company of bears and feral notch girls on a monsoon evening incandescent with an appetite as mighty as railroads spanned across seas and reclines, its cheeks burnished, its ass varnished by suns setting on bronze and sugared with saltpeter, its torso, a tableau for the annals of rectitude, the theater for roiling or robust passage, of a veritable Suez Canal towards missionary victories which thrust from such bejeweled and oiled loins anointed by coin, that emission of plump lumps, lump sumps into the Ganges, that coiling coy virgin maiden winding her languid locks, batting her lashes to its lashes, its spine a gentle wire, supine. Its belly swells with salt and figs, with meat and treaties. It corks open a profound song itself. It sings into books heavy with truths. On the chair, dressed with leather and raw hides, kissed by ox blood, smeared with beef dung, lined with raw silk, woven from worms plucked from boughs, basted across its pious beaming eyes, its spidery ghosted lids, and its Byzantine glance unmoors from its Chinese porcelain and cross. The ebony table, polished with lac secreted from the cloaca of the lacca, set from the glazed cakes eaten by pink mouths wearing crimson robes to its guests polished and glossed and stained by the ooze drawn from the color to color the uncolored raw linen, the wood, the human then. Its wrist cuffed by gold and cowries, studded with coral, draws a whisper thin muslin veil dyed carmine, suckled from crushed scale of cockney old boiled in ammonia, and bled into curds and rouge, glinting sanguineous and turbid, between bug and rug, snug, a thug in a red coat or a turncoat, carrying urns of this stuff from estates of cocoa, coconut, calico across its face while soft eclairs of chocolate bumble out from its plumed rump Choked with gum and linseed, flax and cassia, cinnamon and pepper, like so many lines of blood underwriting the mutton and not the goat, so it can sell them with the name of a place, like scarves, or garlanded whores moored to wharves, suckled by mother of pearl, or teas named after earls. And they with whole scores to settle, settle for homemade cures, nettles, ginger, turmeric a paste or to taste, and it steals and seals in letters scented with sandal, sent abroad, waxed and pressed with Cornelian gems, honed from ground it owns and makes stone from their flesh, eeks ink from their sweat, soaks indigo in lye fermented with time and makes color so it can bid for its own passage, the passage, oh, of this soul to India. Thank you.
0: Let's go two rounds around. Um, First, let's accumulate together some instances of the way that Divya Victor uses the sound of words. Kind of an obvious place to start. Let's collect instances and then go a second round and invite. I'll invite each of you to say what effect that has why the sound of words is so important for this particular poem's point. So, Angela, you want to start?
2: Yeah, um I'm glad you wanted to start on that point because that was my first reaction to the poem was on the that level of, of listening and and hearing the sounds of the words rather than considering the semantics, which of course one does when they start to think about looting, but to start with the sound, the roiling, the, the ones I underlined to start with roiling, oiled loins, coin, coiling, koi, the sounds are literally coiling, they're doing what that verb suggests and also in there, plump, plums, lumps, sums. Um, yeah. That's
0: so true. lots of internal rhyming. Mm-hmm. Michael, yeah. you want to add to that?
1: Yeah. Um, I really like meat entreaties, um, and treaties uh, and just the, the length of the sentences as well, um, which just pulls you along in a kind of um, disturbing um, and tense way (laughs) Mm. Um, yeah I really liked uh, sucked from crushed scale of cochineal boiled in ammonia and bled into curds um, and rouge glinting Um, and then it goes into the bug and rug rug, snug snug, thug thug. you know Mm. and then red coat and turncoat and carrying urns of the stuff so really um, I feel like it's taking
4: a lot of momentum there
0: Anna you want to add to that
4: yeah, I mean, the, it's kind of hard to excerpt a moment of sound because the poem generates so much momentum and like forward motion from these relationships that she's building between words. But one that I really love is um, uh, the ebony table polished with lac, secreted from the cloaca of the caria lacca. I like what what I like about that is the way that um, the dominant sound, which is that. Kind of hard C, lack cloaca, cariolaca. Um, As we approach cariolaca, get it kind of compresses, and the space between the repetitions of that hard C um, gets reduced, and it just really it builds and it really picks up speed in that moment. It's just really great.
0: Thank you, all three. So let's go around again, and now it's time to talk about what, why she deploys sounds this way. In, on behalf of her approach, her stance toward Whitman through the title. Mithili, what's the effect or the purpose, either one of those?
1: I think the, um, for me, the sound, it becomes kind of tensely musical. that kind of overpowers um, the meaning. It's hard to concentrate on the meaning. <laughs> um, and I think that um, with my own background and references, I, I, I felt like the... Um, the very rapid kind of, again and again, internal rhyme, um, uh, was connected to me with my experience of, um, South Indian music as well. And like, um, so, uh, religious music, you know, and some aspects probably, you know, translate into more into pop music too, but particularly kind of a ritual, um, you know, rhythm um, with a lot of internal rhyme. That's, like, very common.
0: Divya has said that the poem—and we could have probably figured that this out by counting and so forth, but she has said of this poem that it contains 50 objects that were stolen through colonialism, ex- colonialist extraction that was made possible by the Suez Canal, the so-called Passage to India, which, of course, Walt Whitman celebrated. And not that we could find the 50 or necessarily it's important to find the 50, but that thinginess is what you're talking about. So the kind of most astonishingly fabulous thing you said there was that the the, the thinginess, all the stuff, also has the kind of paradoxical effect of, because it's delivered sonically so intensely, has the effect of our kind of losing sense of the thinginess. So mm-hmm. It's a very thingy poem, but the thinginess kind of is hard to get hold of. Did mm-hmm. I say that right?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's, that's true, and, it, and it's interesting. Um, in meaning, she's pushing against what, um, what uh, Whitman does in Passage to India, um, but it's a, there's a kind of opacity also, you know. On her part, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: That's interesting. Okay, Anna, y- um, your thoughts on the effect or the strategy that Divya Victor is trying to achieve here by using all this sound.
4: Mm. Well, um, she, she writes at the very beginning of this section of the book, which you said is called Foreign Terms. Um, she quotes from the National Geographic Style Manual, um, which is like a, you know, a kind of style guide that any publication would use, um, you know, general sort of style notes. You know, do you capitalize this? Do you italicize that? Um, quoted from the National Geographic Style Manual, she writes, foreign words and phrases that have not yet become anglicized quote, not found in Webster's, are italicized on first appearance in texts and legends. So I think she's there um, in the beginning of this section setting us up to really listen for um, what sounds unfamiliar to, like, Western, particularly, like, English or um, native English speakers. So she's, I think, using sound, using um, these terms that are kind of loaded with um and I put this in air qu- scare quotes exotic allure like to, to critique all of that she's like, kind of critiquing this um attitude towards like what's quote unquote valuable like to a colonizer
0: so she uses its she starts with it mm-hmm. and then everything else is its 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 ass its cheeks It's torso, it's belly, it corks itself, it sings, it's wrist, and so on. You can't help, but even if you're very hip and cool about avant-garde experimental poetry, you still have to think through what it might be, Mm -hmm. even though if you get the whole poem, you do understand why she deploys it that way. So I guess I want to ask... I'm glad I'm asking and not answering (laughs) this. So I guess the sophomoric version of this question or the ooh, ooh, ooh from the back row among the students would be, well, what's it? Mm -hmm. Usually it gets spelled out, but it doesn't. So, Angela, I'm looking at you. And is
2: there one it or many? Right. Right. Are they all part of the same thing? Right. Want
0: to take a shot at this?
2: I I I can't say whether there is one or many it's, but I did want to draw a connection to this italicizing, and this line it sings itself, or it itself it sings, sings, Mm -hmm. um, which of course echoes the Walt Whitman's passage to India, um, and yet in this case it is singing for itself, and so um, I wondered to what extent that notion is foreign, right, Mm -hmm. that it can sing itself.
0: And it's just the whole Whitman project is about singing myself, and the i guess experimental progressive side of song of myself, you know from the beginning
2: mm-hmm.
0: was um, I'm empowered to speak from my subjectivity, and then the more regressive interpretation of that, which came later, I suppose when he became more of an apologist and then more recently in criticisms of Whitman is something like, um, I sing myself, but you, so you don't have to do anything because I, what I assume you shall assume. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of in charge of all of this. And if I think that the Suez Canal is a great way to get access to all the great stuff there, then that's what you should assume too. So things singing themselves is a radical stance in relation to Walt gets to sing things. And things do sing themselves. You just bore witness to that by talking about all the way in which sound gets deployed because the poem sings all the things. Yeah. Was that where you were going? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm I got still, all excited I'm still
2: that. not sure whether it is one or many things, though.
1: And if I could put that question out there.
0: Okay, flea, it's been kicked over to you. All
1: right. Well, I have been thinking that my um, reaction is thinking of it as um, – uh, Walt Whitman's soul, um, since that is that
0: would be the reference,
1: yeah. Um, and but then how how strange and estranging it is if if, if you do carry that meaning um, forward, because immediately the soul, which we typically think of as kind of immaterial or you know um, not uh, touchable, really then you know is immediately sitting with a fork, um, and then um, eating, and so there's all this kind of like ravenous appetite, and it's that appetite. Um, You know, that, um, and then, yeah, since her poem is aggressively material, um, very, you know, as we've been saying, so it's very interesting that this this soul then is like... Um, grabbing and grabbing and kind of building a body and there's sort of a some traditions talk about like building an energy body I was sort of like thinking of that too right so like but but in this very um, interesting way that's
0: a great reading of it <laughs> I've been reading this poem for months now because we've been talking about it a lot around here I've never thought of that. I mean, so obvious, but the soul seems to be gluttonous, you know, kind of forcibly stuffed by all the stuff that he justified extracting. Mm-hmm. Ew. <laughs> um Anna?
4: Yeah, I I totally agree with that reading. It, it feels to me like Divya Victor is not going to let Walt get away with just having his nice... 1855 edition of Song of Myself that we, like, love and admire. Like, she's not going to let him just get away with that and have that be his poetic legacy. She's literally yanking his soul back and loading it up with all of the stuff that his colonizing attitude, like, pillaged from India. Not Walt Whitman literally himself, but that attitude, that legacy, that, like, that desire for, like, material gain and loot... Um, I think she's. I think she's absolutely loading him up so that he can't go anywhere. <laughs> Makes me think of like mausoleums where the dead were buried with their like material stuff. Ooh. Like you know, she's
0: like, <laughs> really good. She's
4: burying him under all the stuff that he took. <laughs> wow,
0: you want this stuff? All right, <laughs> here you go. <laughs> hey Anna, that's great. What? Following that thought, how about if? We try to do a close reading of a couple of lines here. I mean, it's really a way for us to say what we've just been saying, but um, it's the second sentence supine, its belly swells with salt and figs with meat and treaties. It corks open a profound song. Itself it sings into books heavy with truths on the chair dressed with leather and raw hides kissed by ox blood, etc. What's happening in that scene? We've already been sort of been talking about it, but who wants to start
1: right so it's stuffed and then it corks open instead of a bottle of wine or as you expect a profound song and so then there's something intoxicating about the song which again feels like to me like that is it's kind of a um covering up you know or prettifying the um the real experience
4: (laughs) yeah that feels to me like a reference again to another um I want to say this is in Canto Five of Walt Whitman's Song of Myself, when Whitman says to loose the stop from your throat. Oh um,
0: yuck! What a reading of that. That's yeah. great.
2: I'm also drawn to this um, this verb chairs, on the chair dressed with leather and mm. raw hides. The chair isn't covered with leather. That's a really particular choice of a verb there, and it almost personifies or makes animal um, right the the furniture and
0: the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, in a way, this deradicalizes and decanonizes Whitman, who started out making his own book and being really radical, and turns out to be the you know the writer whose leather bound editions we have. So she basically makes him into a good gray poet who's very conventional, mm-hmm. the kind of book you'd collect. In a an overstuffed den. <laughs> so here's another question. It's, you know, it, it does this and it's there. And then, comma, a veritable Suez Canal. So it, whether it's Walt Whitman's soul or just the thing itself, there's a sort of two readings of it. One way or other, it is itself a veritable... Suez Canal. Who wants to read that? I mean, it's a great moment.
2: Well, that implies, if it is a Suez Canal, that it's a vessel for um, colonization, or for um, moving those extracted items, or stealing. And mystifying it while it's doing so. <laughs>
1: hmm
0: It figures the poet, whose throat is famously loosed, and who here is being stuffed with the things that he enabled to be extracted, or he didn't enable it, but whose extraction he supported. Um, It creates a kind of analogy to the poet. The poet's mouth becomes a Suez Canal Mm -hmm. with all that crap inside and the cork uncorking and you get this kind of spewing forth, which is a way of describing Whitman's writing sometimes. The poet as Suez Canal... (laughs) (laughs)
3: that's
2: a great description
4: well and it's also I think I mean you can also think of the idea of exchange I mean it's certainly unequal exchange in a colonial situation but it is like an exchange that has occurred Um, like I was thinking about um, later on in the poem Divya writes um, this is kind of in the middle of that second page, second stanza um, like so many lines of blood underwriting the mutton and not the goat Mm -hmm. so I was thinking about like cuisine and actual food and the way that um, like British cuisine has been so has been such a you know kind of has cherry picked so much of um, the the cuisines that it colonized. Um, like you would see mutton on a menu in a British pub, but you would not see goat necessarily. Um, so the way, the Suez Canal is like as a form of of exchange unequal exchange. What gets taken and what gets left behind.
3: Supine. Its belly swells with salt and figs, with meat and treaties. It corks open a profound song itself. It sings into books heavy with truths. On the chair, dressed with leather and raw hides, kissed by ox blood, smeared with beef dung, lined with raw silk, woven from worms plucked from boughs, basted across its pious beaming eyes, its spidery ghosted lids, and its Byzantine glance unmoors from its Chinese porcelain and crosses the ebony table, polished with lac secreted from the cloaca of the Kerrialaka, set from the glazed cakes eaten by pinked mouths wearing crimson robes to its guests, polished and glossed and stained by the ooze drawn from the color to color the uncolored raw linen, the wood, the human.
0: I I want to... Uh, push is probably too strong a word. I want to um, test out... Uh, in this, in the last part of this thing, um, some references to writing and naming. Mm. Um, if the if our collective pleasure-taking assumption is that the poet is figured, or it anyway, the soul of the poet is figured as a veritable Suez Canal itself, then later on we encounter underwriting, a name of a place. Uh, pearl or T's named after Earl's. That would be Earl Grey tea, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, things that are stolen and sealed in letters, scented with sandal and sent abroad. So we've got a lot of writing going on here. Mm-hmm. Underwriting is just a pun, but italicize a name of a place. Right. So what she's saying about language and about writing in relation to this colonialist Grand malfeasance.
2: That um, reminds me of the poem, the letter U, right? Yeah, me too. Um, Two pages before this one, um, uh, um, where she repeats the word unchristen. And I was also thinking about the name um, and the place name, and how even if Whitman wasn't a Christian, his gesture of naming. Um, naming India, for example, um, is, lays a claim to it, right? In the way that parents' name is condescending, it's patronizing, it's, a, it's an act of naming that is maybe not bound up for him in religiosity, though he does say the poet is the son of God, right,
4: at some point. I was thinking about the ways that um, co- the colonizers often rename places mm-hmm. if the name is not, you know pronounceable in English. They'll like literally rename it um, to something that like and the way that in that line a name of a place is italicized suggests given her earlier note about italics and the role that they play um, as like not anglicized again in air quotes. Um, Seems to me she might be commenting on on how things um, would get renamed.
0: In this respect can we interpret the epigraph? One of the first very first Indian words to enter English is loot, and that's a laugh line in the performance we heard.
2: Mm. Though it's not funny.
0: Though it's not funny. A right. laugh line in the sense of a knowing audience. Oh, wow! That was really a smart thing to say. But can mm-hmm. we just maybe it's too obvious? But can we say what's being said there? The slang for plunder is loot, and it's one of the first words to make it from Hindustani. Into English, kind of obvious, but
4: could also be one of the first things that they did when they arrived. In Got to have place. a
0: name for the thing that you're about <laughs> right? to do. Like <laughs> <What's> <laughs> right? Like, what's the name of this? Yeah. Loot.
1: And, and uh, one of the other things I was thinking about with the names, name of a place, especially in relation to the mutton um, goat line, um, and then the scarves. Of course, you know, you think cashmere, right? And so. Um, you know how many people have cashmere scarves and don't know that Kashmir is a place and you know with a, a very intense history
0: what can the poet do what can what what does divya victor's project seem to be kind of a, that's a question it's a bad question because it asks for a simplification but can it be that a poet who writes a poem a prose poem in this way uh, reminds, yes, reminds, recovers, no, no, doesn't recover, but gets to say a bunch of things that are thingy to remind us of the density of the looting. Is there is there something that can be done? What's the efficaciousness, if any? Or maybe it's really just about reminding us of what Walt what, what Whitman led to or what he enabled. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's criticism. The floor is open. What do you think?
1: I was thinking about this very question as I was coming over here because, um, I mean, I feel like, um, by making us see these things, um, which, you know, the setting is a historical one in one sense, um, but the, um, the action is, um, present and, you know, um, we could say everywhere, <laughs> um, you know, so so I feel like, you know, reading this poem, um, you know, for me, separate from, you know, my connection to India as a place and its history. But um, but separate from that, you know, it's just like it's a reminder to the, see what's going on now, um, you know, um, in so many places um, and what kind of discourse, song, um Is, you know, um, deployed to help us um, not see it, or to you know, and how we are put into a trance, um, which I feel like we are in so many ways. And all of this looted language has been
2: absorbed into English in a way that we can't really see it, right? And so that making, making us hear it and see it and aware of it is isn't. And she does that
0: energetically and aggressively in this poem, you cannot, Mm -hmm. it's hard to hear the performance or to read the poem and not think, not to be more linguistically conscious. Your thoughts on this?
4: Yeah, I mean, English is is a language of looting, right? I mean, English Mm -hmm. has taken so much from other languages, like historically and recently. To me, so much of what poetry is or what it can be is this process of reminding, this calling attention to language, this calling attention to naming and what is named and how it's named. Um, because you're right. I mean, often those things that are looted just get absorbed and, and the, the root of them is kind of forgotten. So what more powerful sort of project for a poem is there than reminding us where these names came from and how they were taken?
0: Yeah, and I also think it's worth observing another obvious point, which is that poetry is one of those forms of writing that can give itself the liberty to do this work—the sonic work, the uh, you know interlinguistic work—that a scholarly article or even a lecture can't do so easily because it has to be—it has—it would have to use the conventional language in order to convey the point against conventional language. Or you would be kicked out of the academic conference if you presented something like this as a paper. And so poetry has that has that power. Um, let's let's go around. Final thoughts. Something you wanted to say about this poem today that you haven't had a chance to yet. Final thoughts.
4: I really like the way that she is um, using. I mean, we haven't talked. A lot about this because there's so much language to deal with, but the way that she's using um, dashes and commas um, and and pauses um, in this list poem to – or list prose poem. Um, it is listy. Yeah. To mm-hmm. do so much work in rhythm. I always feel like the pause comes exactly when I sort of need one as like a breath um, because there is so much – there's so much that's accumulated like in this poem And I always found the dashes and the commas and the pauses um, smart and opportune moments to remind us of how these phrases actually are sort of grouped together. Um, To say nothing of of all of the linguistic and sonic relationships that she builds between words, too, that create momentum. But the pauses, I think, are doing just as much work to to lull us into this um, very thingy poem.
0: Mindfully,
1: final thought? I think... um you know, the, the end of the poem goes really into, um, uh, making stone from their flesh ekes ink from their sweat and indigo. And then, you know, like, so it's really, yeah, going into ink and then, um, that, you know, from, from all of this suffering, you know, that then ink, which is the tool of writing. And, um, so in a way it's like all writing is, um, you know, just, uh, there's, there's no original innocence to go back to. Um, you know, it's all shot through with this. And um, I think of Caliban. Um, you taught me language. And uh, I don't remember the exact line, but, you know, and, and my prophet is I know how to curse. So how, you know, so that, you know, so and in a sense, the whole project of English literature comes from the colonial era that, you know, people didn't study English literature, as such, before it had to be taught to um, the subjects in the colonial process, and so that's you know that all of that is kind of um, you know in my in my head, and so in a way, you know, English is as Indian in one sense as you know any um, as it is English. <laughs>
0: wow! Yeah, that's such a perfect point for this.
2: I I wanted to step back to the. Um this alphabet poem and ever since i first looked at this book i wondered why it ended with w um i don't know if there's a hard answer for that and i'm not really interested in in trying to speculate on on that but it is a really dramatic place to end the book you know as a comment on a national poet um a found founding very you know significant poet in American uh, literature, um, and so the book ends with a deconstruction of, of you know his, his thought, um, but then also that it's framed within this, um, this structure of the alphabet, which is also really, um, kind of imperialist, right? In the alphabet itself, right. Yeah, building but it, but it's broken at the end so maybe broken doesn't something. end yeah, oh, I
0: like that reading mm-hmm. of w being the last one mm-hmm. a lot. well, my final thought follows from Myphelies um I really like the ending as well uh very powerful. It turns from things stolen uh steals and seals and letters scented you know, letters that accompany boxes of tea and other extractions that are being sent. But then it takes that turn that Maithili talks about, which is a turn toward the ink from their sweat soaks indigo in life, fermented with time, uh, and that refers to the writing of the people whose labor made all this possible. And there's a kind—I mean—passage becomes a passage of slave of of enslavement as well as um, coming through a canal from east so-called to west so-called. Uh, so there, so it's. Not just labor, ink, sweat, but it's essentially slave labor or labor not uh, not compensated, and that to think of the ink that is set down in a work of writing like this as sweat-soaked indigo mm-hmm.
1: uh,
0: and lie fermented with time. In other words, this is a long, long project, and makes color. Becomes visible ink, becomes legible writing, so it can bid for its own passage. That's just such a brilliant way to end this. Again, with the meta poetic idea that this writing was made is made possible by understanding that Divya Victor and other poets are singing themselves, making their own passage, finding their way through their own way through. Hmm.
1: Can I have one more thought to add? To yeah, that? please. Um, so. I think also um, who has agency to kind of control the journey, um, you know, and, of course, how, how it is in Whitman, you know, this utopian kind of um, vision. Um, but with the legacy of colonialism, you know, diaspora is that, you know, people um, have varying degrees of choice. Some have, you know, truly no choice, but, um, but there are, you know, even those who are voluntary immigrants. You know, there are some other factors that are pushing, um, you know, as well. And so that's very much in my mind, given our current political climate.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you. We like to end poem talk with a minute or two of gathering paradise, which is a chance for all of us, if you're quick, to to spread wide our narrow hands, Dickinsonian hands, to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world and everybody's flipping through books and poems. <laughs> so Anna, I think you're ready to get some Yeah, us, I'm ready.
4: Um, I would like to shout out to uh, the recently published new and selected poems of Cecilia Vicuña. Um, seems particularly resonant and relevant given um, our conversation just now about Divya Victor. Um, but I wanted to quote from um, Daniel Barzetsky's introduction um, to the Again, New and Selected Poems is Cecilia Vicuña from Kelsey Street Press. This just feels really resonant to me right now, given our conversation and also political climate. Um, so he writes of Cecilia's work, translation, we might say, serves as a means of exploring the imaginary yet powerfully prohibitive borders imposed by nationalism. And that just seems like a good next step in your, in your reading if you want to read more projects that are concerned with um, translation and nationalism and... You know, colonial legacies and all that good stuff.
0: Say again the name of Cecilia's new work.
4: It's new and selected poems. New and selected yeah.
0: poems. Okay. Great. mightfully gather some paradise.
1: Um, well, two quick things. I um. I definitely the. I think reading this entire book, "Kith" by um by um, Divya, is uh, an incredible experience. Um, and uh, another book that uh, is not poetry but um, is uh. Most recent in my mind uh, is Rebecca Traister's *Good and Mad*: The uh, Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger, and I had the chance to see her at the Free Library um, have the book. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, and I think uh, one of the things that uh, connects to this poem also is just the the idea that um, uh, you know progress is not. Um, I mean. Progress is a complex <laughs> idea to begin with, but, but, um, but she was sort of saying, you know, things that, that uh, had, she thought had been won were now no longer <laughs> um, assured, um, but, but that looking back at, like, people who are struggling... She said she realized that she, she was going to be struggling for things that she would not necessarily see the outcome of, um, and I think that, to me, that, that speaks to some of what um, is happening in this poem, too.
0: Great. Rebecca Traster Good and Mad is the book. Right. Um, Angela?
2: Just recently, um, um, I read Erin Mori's translation of a speech Chius Pato gave when she was named to um, the Galician Academy of Poets, or uh, no, the Royal Academy, that's what it is, of Galicia. And it's a beautiful philosophical essay. Um, I love reading women who write philosophy who are poets um, i'm always excited about that so so
0: it's Aaron moray's new translation
2: well anything that erin has translated by yeah. choose pato the other books will be more accessible than this one um in terms of ordering but yeah
0: fantastic well i have two gathering paradises um one is a uh, i don't do this kind of log rolling on Poem Talk often. In fact, I may never have done it. It's possible. Um, I want to recommend to folks the Divya Victor materials associated with this poem that are already in the site of the open online course that Anna and I and others teach called Modpo. So you can go to modpo.org to find it. And it's free, so you can kind of subscribe slash enroll and get access to the Modpo Plus syllabus, which includes the following resources with this, of this poem, um, the text of it, okay, obviously. Uh, watching or listening to Divya perform the poem. You can watch a discussion that several of us had. I think, Anna, you were in on that, of this poem, a video discussion to supplement the one we've just had. And finally, you can watch a video in which Divya Victor, Laney Brown, and I discuss the poem, and we will be adding this conversation to the poem. So, this poem will be potentially very much talked about. So, there you go, modpo.org. Secondly, Angela Carr, can I? Is it okay if I if I shout you out? The, one of her books, one of your books, is here and there. It's fantastic. I'll say before I read a few lines from this book, I'll say also that on this very day, you will be, or actually tomorrow morning, you will be recording for your Pensound page, I think, I hope a whole lot of poems. So by the time people are listening to this recording, you'll get to go to Pensound and look up Angela Carr's page and hear her perform her poems. There's a poem I really, really like, and I found out this afternoon that you like it too. It's called Other Signs, and I just want to read a couple of lines from it. It's about the name, so it's kind of relevant. The name is easily replaced, or it is the unattainable extreme of any designation. The name is a property of invention, imperial, it is indifferent to heat and cold. The name in its powdered state presents us with an opportunity to share instant refreshments, refreshments in a waiting room surrounded by magnificent flowers. The name is a trace of placation in the hierarchy of desires. It slips between choice and another's indication of belonging, a door. Any name rotates on the axis of identity, A lack of name would mean to have no place. That's really great. Mm -hmm. Here and there. Wonderful. Well, that's all the rouge, glinting, sanguineous, and turbid we have time for in Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House (laughs) is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing in the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Anna Strong-Safford, Angela Carr, Mytha Lee Jaganathan, and to Poem Talk's directors and engineers today, Zach Cardner and Chelsea Zhu. Uh, and to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner, and a shout-out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support of Poem Talk. For our next episode, Josh Schuster, coming from Canada, Evelyn Riley, and James Sherry will be here to talk with me about May Bersenbrugge's Hello, the Roses. This is Al Philreiss, and I hope you'll join us again for that or another episode of Poem Talk.